You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I hope these talks give you a little bit of inspiration to keep practicing and make your world a better place. Yoga is more than just a physical practice. It's a lifelong spiritual journey, and we constantly need sustenance to help us stay on the path. So I hope you find that sustenance right here, and I look forward to seeing you on the mat. So it's such a pleasure to share the practice with all of you. Before we open up for questions, please feel welcome to start typing them into the chat or raise your hand uh, if you want to ask a question. But first, I just want to say that it's so nice to share the space of practice with all of you. Thank you so much for carving out this time in your day for practice. And to be practicing here together is such a blessing and such an honor that it's important that we take time to acknowledge just how special that is. Out of the myriad of things that we could be doing today, jet skiing, parasailing, playing hockey, or any other thing that may be entertaining, or any other thing that may be uh, occupying our mind, like doing the laundry or cleaning the house or things like that, we are here practicing yoga. You are here practicing yoga. So in some very important way, you have chosen consciously and with intention to step onto this path. And so I just want to thank you so much for that because this tradition lives in the hands of all of the students. So I mean, each of you play a really key role in contributing to the flourishing of the lineage and the practice of yoga. So thank you for the role that you have played in creating this space of practice. Without you, this, uh, this, this space cannot happen and it wouldn't flourish. So each of you has really done such a wonderful thing by carving out this time for the practice. And this is what matters. More than anything is that you carve out as much time as you can in each day to devote a little bit of that towards the, your own spiritual practice and your own spiritual journey. Because without that conscious intention and without that gr gratitude for the gift of yoga, it can so easily be brushed aside and we can so easily disregard or take it for granted and think, oh yeah, yoga. Oh yeah, yoga. Yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah, yoga. Yeah, it's fun. I do it sometimes. But because you have realized that yoga is a life, a lifelong path and has some valuable contribution to the experience of this kind of awakening that this practice promises. You have carved out the time in your day. And because of that, everything that you have worked up until now is really the result of you know, your own efforts. So you can say thanks to yourself as well and, and recognize and honor that which is within you that has made this possible. Because sometimes people love yoga, but they don't love themselves. Oh, I love yoga. I don't like myself so much though. Yoga is so good, but me, I don't know about. You know, so also recognize that you are here. And because you're here, that that seed from within yourself, that goodness within yourself, you are attracted to the goodness in yoga by the goodness that's within yourself. So you yourself are good. And you yourself shine with that same light and goodness that comes from the practice of yoga itself. So please take a moment and thank yourself as well. Oh, that is good within me. I put in the effort. Look, I made it. Not only did I show up, I've completed this practice. Wow. Not everybody who joined did that. <laughs> right? So those of you that have completed the practice, just think, wow, I made it through. I've survived. Even that utplutihi, I've done it. To the best of my ability, I've done it. You know, wow. So you want to really just take this moment and, and, and acknowledge your efforts. Because sometimes we can place our own efforts last, but it is our own effort that we stand on in this spiritual practice. Without our own effort, then we do not 
to progress along the path. So we have to acknowledge our effort. However feeble it may be, however faltering it may be, we have to acknowledge, I showed up and I did my best. I could judge that, but what is the purpose of that? I showed up, I did my best. Wonderful. And then to acknowledge, oh, wow, this is not just me in a vacuum, you know, but this is the, the space that's created is the result of thousands of generations of people that have walked this path before me. So it's not me alone, me alone, the rugged individual pioneering out into the final frontier of consciousness. It is me along with the thousands of generations of yogis that have come before me. Thousands of generations of yogis in India who've tended to this practice, our teachers, our teachers, teachers, and their teachers before them, and all the, the unsung heroes of yoga who played a, who played a role in the perpetuation of this, of this path, who have tended what we could call the sacred fire of yoga for years, upon which perhaps there were no students except one or two here or there, just enough to pass on to the next generation. And then now we are here today. So we think, wow, all of these human beings, real live human beings with the same emotions that you have, with the same love and hate, with the same fear and excitement, with the same ups and downs, the trials and tribulations of life, they have faced their struggles and they've stayed on the path. Because of all of these people who have come before us, we stand here today. Wow, this is really something. And then not to put the burden on all of us here today, but to think of hopefully what will be the thousands of generations of yoga students that are yet still to come, who will improve upon this path and help to grow the light. Those whose names we will never know because we won't be here anymore. Those who will take this path in places we can't imagine because we create a foundation for them on whose uh, our shoulders will be the, the shoulders upon which those generations to come will stand. So we now have this responsibility that we have to think about how we can best preserve what is sacred about yoga, what is sacred about this path, how we can best honor this tradition, not for ourselves to keep it for ourselves, but to, but to spread that and to pass it on in good form to the next generation. You know, when we think about this, oh, those yogis who are being born right now in the good fortune to be born in the yoga family, to be born to parents who are practicing yoga and abiding by not only the, the asana practice, but abiding by the, the yamas and the niyamas and the moral and ethical principles that comprise the whole path of yoga, that these beings to be born in that family will take this path and spread the knowledge of yoga to even more people with the recognition of the past, of where the yoga has come from, and with an eye towards the future of where this yoga can take us. As more and more people practice yoga, as more and more people understand the spiritual journey, as more and more people step onto the path, then there's more love, more happiness, more joy in the world. And we become stronger and stronger, stronger and stronger, because it takes great strength and determination to choose yoga over and over and over again recognize that each time that the spiritual journey is chosen over all of the myriad distractions of life, it is a recommitment over and over again that you don't just choose once, but you choose every day. Every time you get on the mat, it's a new choice. It's a renewal of what we call uh, the great vow. So it's said, Patanjali called the, the vow of the yoga practitioner, which is essentially, you know, I, I commit to doing this practice every day and following to the best of my ability, the moral and ethical guidelines that this path recommends that that is called Mahavrutam, which is called, is translated from Sanskrit as the great vow. Maha, the great vrutam, the vow, the great vow. What is this vow? On this vow, I'm going to protect this practice. I'm going to practice, put my best efforts in. I'm going to live my yoga. Uh, we have this Sanskrit word called nairantardia, which is one of the qualifications to reach firm ground in the yoga practice. So if we're thinking about taking on the practice as a great vow, then we have to understand nairantardia means it's translated without break. But what this means is that I commit to doing this practice every day as a ritual, yes, but I commit to living my yoga in every moment of my life. So that I walk this path, not only when I'm trying to put my leg behind my head or jump back or lift up, but I live this path when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm talking to a stranger, when I'm 
you know, doing the laundry, paying the taxes and doing whatever else we do throughout the day. You know, I committed to this path of Nairantardia. And that is a recommitment each time we get on the mat and every single day. To understand why it's a recommitment is to understand how tenuous all of the efforts and the ground gained through each practice really, really is. Everybody's been in a period where we have slipped from ground gained. And so this is, um, uh, this is called, in, translated into English as instability or slipping from ground gain. It's one of the obstacles stated by Patanjali in the Sanskrit. This is called anavashtitatvani. And anavashtitatvani is a very long Sanskrit word, which is translated to slipping from ground gain. The English word recidivism is a similar concept when it's backsliding. When we, come, we make progress and we backslide. There are numerous ways that we backslide. First, we can backslide by getting distracted by the myriad of things in the material world. We get distracted and something looks more interesting than our yoga practice at some weird hour on the weekend. You know, sleeping in looks better. Jet skiing looks more entertaining. Parasailing has a better view, you know, or just anything else other than yoga. And when you, you take that choice, that choice leads to another choice, which leads to another choice, which leads to another choice. And very soon, the weekend is no longer yoga time. But the weekend is entertainment time. And then it's gone. That one special time had slipped away because it wasn't cared for. And it was gone. It was there, but it was gone. Like a fire that you don't attend to. The flame can suddenly stop burning because you were distracted and went out for a walk and came back. And then the embers are gone. And we have to start all over again. Anybody who's had a long pause from the practice of yoga knows just how hard it is to get that fire started again. Because once you've gone off the path, you will carry with you the memory of what once was. So it will feel, you will have equal parts guilt and judgment, and it will feel like an impossible hurdle to climb over. So this is why it's better not to stop. But if you stop, we have to let go of the past entirely and begin again and accept the humble pie and just realize I have once reached this height, but I'm not there anymore. I must start again from wherever I am. The path begins. We don't know that mountain. Maybe you will not climb again, but there may be a different mountain with different sites that you will climb. And maybe who knows, you'll look back at the other mountain. Oh, I was once there. Now I'm over here. The flowers are different. The air is slightly different. I used to like that mountain. I thought I was going to live there. But you see, I came down that mountain and I've had to redirect my path over here. And it's still okay, you know, but we understand the humility it takes. Sometimes we have to lose the ground gained entirely to realize just how precious that was. And it's this idea that sometimes we are given everything, so many gifts, so many blessings. I see this in some new students. They come to the practice. So many gifts, so many blessings. So many gifts. What does this mean? So many gifts, so many blessings. Some people come to the practice at a very young age and they have so much free time because they're at a very young age. Maybe they're in the university and they have the great fortune to have the financial means to only study. So they have in the university, you know, you have Yes, you're busy, but you're not busy like busy, busy. You know, in university, you have time to party. We have time to hang out with friends. We have time to waste the life doing this or that, this or that. We also have so much time to do yoga. So some people I meet, oh, I started yoga in college. I had so I even took a course. It counted towards my college degree that I did yoga three times a week for two hours. And I got the college credits for this. And then suddenly... The college stops, no more yoga, life kicks in, partying becomes more interesting, the job becomes very, you know, stressful. And then 10 years later, we have this memory. Oh, I once did yoga in college when I had all this time. I used to be able to do this backbend. I used to be able to do this headstand, this lift up, this flip flop. And now I cannot touch my toes. I used to touch my toes so easily. Now I cannot touch my toes. I never had pain. Now I have so much pain. Now even I don't need to do yoga and I have pain. And then we have, so we get become, it becomes an extra obstacle. So it's better, as I said, not to stop. But if you stop and start again, there is a new lesson, a new lesson of humility. And this humility is so important because even if you stay on the path, this humility is so important. Without the humility, without the humble heart, then the, the yoga practice can 
you know, sometimes create a little, a sense of division, you know, a sense of I'm special because I do this practice. So we have to have this humility that comes. The humility is so important. So the students that stay on the path also need to get the humility at some place and it will come just by practicing. But remember, if you stop practicing, that lesson of starting again, this is such a beautiful time because now you had this blessing, so many gifts, so many blessings, and you threw them away for whatever reason. Sometimes we don't realize what's valuable to us. You know, sometimes we do this with people. You know, I don't know if you've had this with people. Sometimes we have a friend. They're always there for us. Take them for granted. We throw them away. We took them for granted. You know, then they're gone. Ah, My friend was always here. Oh, I miss my friend. It was so nice, this friend. You threw them away. Did not value them. They've left because you said, oh, you don't matter to me. I'm fine. I'm by myself over here. I have these other friends. But then this one friend was so special. You took for granted, you didn't realize how much support this friend was giving you, that this friend was your rock, your foundation, you threw them away. So people do this with yoga. We throw the throw yoga away. We didn't realize that yoga was our rock, our best friend, our stable base to return to over and over again. We threw the practice away, took it for granted. Now we have to come back with humility. Hey, my friend, I didn't value you before. You gave me so much. Please forgive me. I'll value you this time. I'll take good care of you. I know I need to win your trust again, but... I'm willing to do it. So I'll show up here, my mat every day. And my forward bend used to be better, but it's okay. I'm happy just to have you in my life again. I'm so appreciative just to have the time and space for whatever this practice is. You know, I can't jump back. I used to jump back. Can't do headstand. It's okay. I'm just so grateful, my friend, my old friends, that you're back in my life. And so we cultivate this humility and it, it can really come from the heart, you know, and we can really learn to cherish that gift of yoga once more to realize, oh, thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this time on the mat, for this community that's created around me, especially in these times to to, to cherish that specialness of, of the practice. The community that's created around the practice is so important, so important. As we, as we, as we ourselves, you could say, tend this, uh, this uh, sacred fire of, of yoga. So this was what I wanted to talk about. And I see it as I've been talking, there's been a lot of typing happening. So Christian, I see our hand is raised. So stay there if it's okay. I'm going to look at the questions and then I will come back to you. Okay. So let's go all the way back. So Erica has a very practical question. She, uh, maybe she's already gone. She said she had to take her kids to soccer. So the the life is interfering. So, (laughs) So Erica was just asking when I will be teaching again. I'm teaching a lot in April, but not in person. Um, so if I can find the time to add, so actually, it's not true. I'm teaching just not in Miami in person. I'm teaching in Pittsburgh in person in April. Maybe if I can find the time, I can add something. So we have to stay tuned for that. I very much uh, enjoy both uh, teaching in person and connecting virtually as we are now. So just stay tuned for that. I will post things. So now uh, Daniela has a question. And Daniela says, I have a question. Lately, I have had a lot of fear in coming up and coming up in certain parts of my practice, specifically in backbending. Do you have any advice for working through all of the mental fear that arises? I am trying to focus my mind and concentrate on my breathing, but still so many stories arise. Wonderful question, Danielle, and thank you so much for sharing. First of all, fear is normal. So we want to normalize the fear. The fear, so the first thing to understand is this is normal. So when the fear comes, first of all, to sell fear, thank you for coming. You know, so oftentimes fear comes and immediately our thought is, how can I make you go away? I want this gone. It shouldn't be here. When I get over it, no more fear. No fear. Here I go. No, no, no. Fear is normal. Wonderful. So recognize, oh, fantastic. Fear has arisen. What a wonderful opportunity to become intimate with fear. And now you can experience two things. First, how does fear feel kinesthetically in my body? What are the physical accompaniments of fear? Disturbed breathing, shaking, trembling, whatever it is, heating sensations, uh, all, all disturbed vision, all sorts of other things can, up, can come up when we feel fear. Oh, fear, wonderful. Now I'm intimate with fear. I feel fear is present. So we acknowledge fear is present. Then the second thing to observe, how do I react when my fear is present? Do I, li- do I obey the fear? Oh, fear, ah, run away. Or do I push through the fear? Ignore you, do whatever. Or what do I do? Do I seize up? What do I do? What is my reaction when fear is present? Because whether you do the asana or not, that those double that double prong of observation, what is fear? How does it manifest? What is my reaction to that manifestation? That actually is the work of yoga. So if you can do that, 
and put that as your goal. Wonderful. Then, great, you're doing the practice. Third thing that's very useful when fear comes up, and this is something um, that we want to, that you can stick to as a technique, small attainable goals. So instead of, I'm going to drop back right now. If fear comes up when you start to drop back, then your goal is not to drop back. Your goal is to take one additional breath at the fear point, and that's all. And that, so it's a small attainable goal. Okay, I have a lot of fear when I drop back. I'm going to go. I'm going to feel the fear. Fear is present. I want to run away. Instead of running away, my small goal is one more breath. Got this. One more breath. Good. And in that change, you have repatterned how you respond to fear. You acknowledge the existing pattern and you choose a new course. And you have to make the new path so attainable that you'll do it and so tangible that it's an actual kind of felt lived result. So when you do that, you change your habit, you change your habit pattern. Then make sure you stick to the physical technique. So you make sure that the fear is not related to potential damage that may harm the body. So always check in physically. Am I in danger of any physical harm? Is my technique good? Oh, my technique is good. Because sometimes fear is not associated with anything rational. Sometimes the fear is very rational. So like if we see a tiger, that fear is rational. You don't need to pause and feel the impact of fear on your body. Then now you're the tiger meat. So if you have the fear, sometimes the fear is rational. So if you have, if you're trying to do a drop back at the edge of a, of a balcony, please listen to the fear. Do not drop back. All right. But if you're there, very comfortable, comfortable, there's no physical pain in the body. There's no pinching sensations. Your heels are grounded, but fear is still there. Then recognize that this is an irrational fear of some type stimulated by the yoga practice. Feel my fear, my reaction to my fear. Recognize my technique is good. One more breath. Next time, two more breaths. Three times, four more breaths. Slowly, slowly, by staying in the posture longer, the physical posture is improving. You get more comfortable. The back bend gets deeper. The fear lessens because you become intimate with the sensation of fear. And the best part, you have a tool to work with the fear when it comes up in life because we have so much irrational fear that comes up. You know, so much irrational fear. You know, the E, the sound of the email sometimes in irrational fear, just the sound. <laughs> You know, it could be nothing, just some spam we need to delete, you know, but then we tense up in the body. The breathing is short. So now we have a new technique. Okay. Good. Thank you. Wonderful. So let's see. Uh, Georgia says every time the practice is different. Good observation. So this is why the Ashtanga Yoga Method, we do the same thing every day for the rest of our life. And it's always different. So very, very good observation. So Tatum has a question and Tatum says, I was wondering why Sanskrit counting isn't also used to count the breaths as well as the movements. Oh, well, then I think it would be confusing, uh, too confusing, because we want to have the Sanskrit denote when you should move your body. So then A, come inhale, Dwe, exhale. So then if we go into the downward facing dog and we again, A, come Dwe, Trini, Chatwari, Pancha, then again, we have to say Sapta, inhale, then you don't know when you're going, when you're moving forward and backward. So we try to keep just one, two, three, four, five, the five you stay in the posture in whatever your native language is. So you want to, you know, uh, whatever language you speak, you can, as your native language, you're doing your own practice, you can count in your own native language. Also, if you go to some other country, you don't have to say one, two, three, four, five in English. It's just, I'm in the United States. I'm speaking English. We all probably share English more than other languages, you know? Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, we could count in any language that maybe seems fun, but then not everybody can understand. So also, if you go to um, Thailand, and you're trying to teach to Thai people and you are Thai, please count one, two, three, four, five in the Thai language. If you, um, you know, are going to teach in Spanish and uh, you're going to teach in the Spanish language and teach the whole class in Spanish, then also one, two, three, four, five would be, you know, in, uh, in Spanish like that. So we just, we, we try to keep the Sanskrit for when we denote to move or change the posture. Okay. So let's see. Elizabeth has, has uh, was written a question, so let's see uh, if I can read this. It says, Elizabeth's enjoying the class, and she took the immersion some weeks ago. And she says, I wasn't sore during the week, uh, but when I went back, I feel sore. Is it better to practice daily? Or she said she was doing three times a week practice, and she feels sore. Is it better to practice daily? And do you have any tips for managing the fatigue of daily practice? I do other sports as well, but I imagine a lot of it is in the mind. So there's two parts to this. First of all, if you do other sports, you do other sports intensively, whatever other training you do, if you do intensively, like you're a marathon runner, triathlete, something like that, let your yoga practice support 
your other physical discipline. If you're like a, you know, you're a skier or you're a boxer or something like that, you're a weightlifter, whatever it is, you do yoga, you love yoga, but that's your main physical, something else is your main physical discipline, light yoga practice or whatever yoga practice supports that. Otherwise you burn the candle at both ends and you can end up feeling fatigued too easily. So be sure that you're not a burning the candle physically at both ends. Okay. Second, the fatigue gets better when you have a consistent practice. So if you always can do something like 30 minutes, three times a week, then the fatigue gets better because your body gets used to it. If the practice is inconsistent, for example, you do an hour and a half one day, half an hour one day, two hours one day, then that's a little inconsistent. So we try to keep the consistency. However, the fatigue doesn't go away like that. Like snap your fingers, fatigue goes away. The fatigue will only go away when you've been practicing for like three months. So there's a hurdle of going through that fatigue where your body needs to kind of normalize the practice, you know, where we don't, where the body's like, okay, I'm integrating this. I get it. And she's doing this every day. I need to adjust. And then that takes about, I've noticed that takes about three months. So keep going through that. Make sure to analyze that you're not burning the candle at both ends and then keep a consistent practice. And I would say reevaluate the fatigue after about three months. Okay, super. I'm scrolling through to see some additional questions. Uh, so Natalie has a question. At times when we pull a muscle or slightly injure ourselves, what approach, what approach is best? So Natalie says that she's hypermobile and tends to self-injure or re-injure. So she's asking, should we avoid certain poses, stop for a few days, and specifically in relation to the sh shoulder? First of all, in a general question, a general sense about injury, when you're injured, you have to change the way you met in, in terms of the methodology of the practice. If you come into the injured practice, and you can get injured not only from yoga, you can also get injured, and I like to say this, from this hazardous thing called life. You know, you can slam your finger in a car door, walk into a wall, trip and fall as you're walking up or down the stairs. You can fall off your bicycle, fall off of a mountain. You can have even more traumatic things happen that are just very injurious, like life is dangerous. So if you have an injury sustained from your yoga practice or from life, whatever it is, you come back to your yoga practice, change the methodology of practice. And it's unfortunate. There's a grieving process. There's, oh, I used to do this and now my shoulder is hurt. I used to be able to do a handstand so easily and now my shoulder is hurt. I can't bear weight on it. Oh, so we go through this letting go. So we have to let go of what once was. And then again, we're at the bottom of that humble path of start again. Now your practice is therapeutic. So we have to ask our, you have to ask yourself, what approach to doing this asana and that asana and this practice can support the healing specifically for you of your shoulder? So specifically for you, because you've written that you are hypermobile, when, when anybody has hypermobility, you can have the tendency to get the injury. Um, you can have the tendency to get the injury. However, when someone is also very stiff, they can also have the tendency to get the injury. It's about use of the body. So the person with stiffness can sometimes get injury from pushing too hard to make the flexibility happen too soon. The hypermobile person can often have the, flexibi uh, the flexibility injury that comes from one of two things. One, instability in the joints. So if your joint is unstable and you haven't found the way to make that joint stable again, uh, then that instability can itself lead to injury. An example would be the shoulder. If your shoulder is not prepared for weight bearing, particularly people with hypermobility can hyperextend the shoulder. And then we can end up bearing weight at the outer limits of what's safe for the shoulder. And if you don't have the strength to support your hypermobility, it's very easily get injured. So when we're working healing back from a hypermobility injury, we have to work stability, strength, stability, strength over and over again. And that means little weight bearing, more articulate, strong control. For people that are born with hypermobility or high flexibility, traditionally it's said in terms of physical training that you need twice as much strength to control that joint. So if you're, uh, you're the, the hypermobility is very intense in the shoulders, you need to get double as strong as you are flexible to control that joint. So you come back to your practice. If, you're, if your injury is from hypermobility, you have to work stability, stability, so which might mean not jumping. It might mean walking forward every vinyasa so that you can control the weight bearing in the shoulder in such a way so that the joint is supported, protected, and you're able to find that deep integration of strength. So every injury is an investigation to figure out how can I use this practice to best support this healing process. And I'm confident that if you go through that, you'll be able to, um, uh, be able to find that, that strength in that healing. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. 
Tom has a question, which is a good one. Why do you think the primary series ends with Utlutihi? It seems like such a devastating way to close the practice. Perhaps that's the point. It's a good question. Why do we have to do this horrible lift up? And no teacher seems to know how to count to 10. We have to submit some complaint to these teachers. No, not a kid. Should be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then we're done. But from counting to ten, it's not working. We have a double problem. So the good news is it's only ten. The bad news is that we have to do the Utlutihi. Utlutihi is supposed to create kind of like a rocket ship of activation. So the idea is to is twofold. First, that you engage every muscle in the whole body, maybe except face muscle, but you squeeze and activate everything. And you have to keep holding, holding, holding so that all the muscles eventually get their opportunity to participate in the lift up. Then what's really cool about that is when you squeeze everything, then everything relaxes. So it's a little bit of this kind of squeeze release and the whole body squeezes and the whole body's like, ah, let go. All right. So that's one reason. Second thing is there's a certain there's a certain activation of the bandhas, which is accessible at the outer limits of what's possible physically. So we have to exhaust the body completely. Everything's completely exhausted. Then you ask the body to do this impossible strength lift up. And only when the exterior muscles are so fatigued, when the shoulders don't have anything else to give, the thighs, the, the exterior muscle, the abdomen don't have any more to give, then the, the energetic work of the bandhas can click in. But that only happens at the very end of practice where everything's, when, once you've worked the practice to its kind of apex point. So there's two reasons. First, it's your best opportunity to find the magic of the energy of the bandhas. Then two, it helps you relax in the final relaxation. So Carly has a question, practicing alone versus guided. What do you suggest? I have a hard time getting through the full primary series on my own without guidance from a teacher or pre-recording on OMSARS. First, Carly, thanks for being part of the OMSARS community. That's awesome. I love that. Then the second thing, it's super hard to practice alone. Like, it's just really hard. That's why we've, you know, I know when you're on your own, you know, you get through like half, half primary series, and you're looking at the clock and you're like, I really need to be getting out of here. You know, I really need to, I have other things to do. I love yoga and everything, but an hour of my life has gone by please let this be over now, you know? So very difficult to keep the discipline on your own. So I would say come to class as much as you possibly can, you know, as much as you can. It's not a problem to go and do that. When we say self-practice, it's a very difficult to do self. Very few people I know can do true self-practice, which means no community, no support. So I go to class as much as you can, you know? If you get the, the Mysore style practice is not go in a room by yourself. You know, this is like the path of the renunciate. The Mysore style practice is come in a room with a group full of people and, the, and then do it on your own, but I'm going to be watching you. You know, there's a community around you in the Mysore style room, you know, whether it's 10 people, 15 people, 20 people, 50 people, you're doing your thing, but you're getting the benefit of the group. But you're, it's a, so Mysore style is very, very interesting because you have the feeling of, of going within because you're not figuring out what, you know, what comes next, what comes next. At the same time, you're benefiting from the communal space. So it's this really amazing, powerful space that allows group practice with deep spiritual introspection. And so this is, but it was never, you know, it's the, the self-practice is never like lock yourself in a room by yourself. That's a very hard path. That's the path of the renunciate. You know, you're going to renounce the world and go practice in a room, you know, by yourself with no teacher, like taking vows to go live in a cave or something like this. So it's very difficult. I don't, you don't need to do it alone. Take a class as much as you can, as much as you can. If you get the opportunity to come in person, come in person, you know, let everything build up and get, and just suck it in. And when you're the student in that way, it's some of the, some of the teachers end up practicing alone in the room. And then they feel this very depressing moment. Oh, now I'm turning on the lamp myself. It's very depressing, you know? And so, so join the, do, as much as you can. I reckon just do it as much as you can. Get as much support of the practice as you can. Okay, so Jill has a question. Do you have any tips to keep a smooth inhale on lifting up on the strength poses? I can keep a nice, even breath rhythm until the lift up and the breath seems to stop or shorten. So you have noticed something natural that when you lift up, it's not going to be this deep, resonant breath like you would if you were relaxing in the posture. So as long as the breath is going in when you lift up, then it's okay. Second, let the lift up happen at the beginning of like 
like start the little inhale, then let the lift up happen, then continue the inhale on the way up. So then you actually use the breath to put more kind of oxygen and air in the body and get the sense of lightness. But it's very normal for the breath to, to change in the strength postures. Your breath should sound a little different in the powerful lift-ups versus the, the, the forward bends, especially if forward bend is easier for you. So let that be. At the same time, try to regulate the breath as much as you can. Okay, thanks. Good. So Steph is here. Steph has a question. Steph says, I get pain in my knees every time I do half lotus. The strain stays for days after. What is the proper way to do half lotus? Well, first of all, Steph, I recommend that don't do half lotus. If you have a strain in the knees that stays for days after, that means you push too hard in the half lotus position. It's, uh, it's too much. So the proper way to do the half lotus is to close your knee joint, having the knee joint closed, then isolate the movement as an external rotation inside the hip socket. And this is most important. Stop when you feel any twinge or tweak in the knee. Do not push further than that. If you feel a tweak in the knee, put a block underneath your knee, put a bolster underneath your knee. Don't push the knee. This is the most important technique for the half lotus. You are planting the seeds of a beautiful flower. That flower has a season. Everybody's flower has a unique season. But if you damage the seed, that flower will never grow. So you have to take care of that flower and think, oh, I'm planting this seed. I'm nurturing this seed each time I come to the practice. Okay? Close the knee joint, drop it out to the side. Oh, the seed is getting damaged. I better back off. You back off when you feel that. Trust that the methodology of the practice will slowly open the hip. And you want to look for movement in the hip area. But when you feel the pain in the knee, please stop. I recommend that very, very strongly. You can try to do some other hip openers, other things that can help open the hip and strengthen the hip, but please don't push the knee. You feel the strain in the knee as you're describing, then half load is not for you right now. Or you have to modify your half load under the knee, protect the knee. Don't let yoga ruin the ability for you to go around and enjoy your life, right? Okay, so it's very, very important. Uh, Annabella has a question. When you are too stiff, should you do specific exercises to improve flexibility before or after the practice? Oh, and you're too stiff. Annabella, I don't believe you're too stiff. Yoga itself is improving your flexibility. So I don't think you need to do anything else. However, if there's one area you very much want to focus on, you can do some additional little stretches or movements that can potentially help you get more acquainted with flexibility or strength in one particular area, but you don't need to. And I would, rather than thinking that you, that, that stiffness is bad, just try to experience, oh, I'm stiff. This is my yoga practice and I am stiff. And trust that 10 years later, if you keep practicing, you'll be little less stiff. I promise you that. Little less stiff. Maybe not lots less stiff, but little less stiff, definitely. Okay. Super. Oh, hi, Oksana. You say you're dealing with the shoulder injury. I'm sorry, Oksana. I hope it gets better soon. It's not fun to have the shoulder injury. And Tanya is also asking about the lotus. Lotus seems impossible for me. What should I, what mobility exercises I should do? Well, the whole of the standing poses is great for doing the lotus position. So trikonasana, the triangle pose, extended side angle pose. This is great. Really good for the lotus position. So is a jhana shishasana A, B, and C, but C might be more difficult for you. So at least A and B, Janusasana, Bhadakonasana, we did. So like all the postures of primary series. Now, one, only one additional thing that can really help with the lotus is the closed knee pigeon. So if you close your knee and take pigeon pose rather than open the knee, the open the knee for pigeon pose is really good for if you're trying to get the leg behind the head. Closed knee pigeon pose, this can be really, really good for the lotus. And then I would, and, and also then in that one, you want to lie down. So don't try to lift the chest up if you're trying to use the lotus position or, or pigeon for the lotus position. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So there was one more question and then we're going to talk with Christian whose hand is up, is waiting patiently. <laughs> so Melissa says, uh, let's see. Melissa says, I struggle with keeping my supporting leg straight during the balancing poses. What should I be doing in the previous postures to help improve my quads for the balancing postures? Melissa, good question. So if you notice that the standing leg and the supporting leg is difficult to maintain straight in the balancing postures, you want to look for what am I compensating for, right? What's the compensation about? Because the reason you can't keep the leg straight is because there's some compensation. Normally, when we take Utita Hasta Padangustasana, this single leg lift, we normally bend the leg of the standing leg 
to lift that leg higher. So it's usually a little compensation. When we bend that knee, that'll shift your pelvis and it'll lift your leg up. So you may need to drop your leg a little bit and then just focus on just keeping the legs, both legs straight and maybe don't worry about the fold forward and don't worry how high you lift that leg up. Then, and if it's not that compensation, maybe it's another compensation, but look for the compensation. Look for the reason. Why am I bending my knee? And it's a compensation and it's not just weakness in the quads. There's usually some, some, some reason that we've let go of the straightness or the stability in the leg. And then we decided, oh, I want to, just the knee bends because we're compensating for one thing or another. So look for where you're compensating for. Second, the strength of the leg is not just the quadriceps, but it's a connection. So when you think about your legs, that strength starts from your feet. And you're going to think about rooting down through the bases of your big toes, your little toes, and your heels, which creates a tripod. Then you're pushing down into that firm tripod. And then as that tripod stabilizes, then energy rises up from the soles of the feet, through the arches, through the lower legs, hits the upper thighs, and then the thigh connects into the pelvic floor via the iliopsoas muscle. So when you're connecting that long line of the soles of the feet, through the lower legs, through the knees, through the quadriceps, through the iliopsoas, at that point, you have a long, clear, stable foundation. And that long, clear, stable foundation will give you more stability. So that's something you can think about in all the previous postures. You're doing the trikonasana posture. Feel that connection up through the iliopsoas. When you're doing even the warrior poses, all the way down through the iliopsoas. A, come inhale. When you raise your arms, the first breath of the practice, feel your connection from the soles of the feet through the legs up into the iliopsoas. Okay? Good. So let's see. Uh, if anybody else also has a question, you're welcome to raise your hand. Oksana, I'm going to go to your question now. So Oksana wrote her question. Oksana says, Tim once mentioned that sometimes injuries in Ashtanga are being called openings. Is it possible that sometimes to shift something in the body to make a better alignment, we experience openings like an injury and with time we'll bring the body into better alignment? You know, yes, it, it, these things can happen um, totally. It can totally happen. It's a little bit like, how can we say that? It's a little bit like you go through life and if everything goes your way, we never learn about what life is really about. But sometimes when we have hardship in our life, then we learn wisdom and compassion. And so the wisdom and the compassion are the opening. The wisdom and the compassion are the gifts. And we needed to struggle a little bit to find that. And so in the same way, the Ashtanga method uses asana as this sort of mirror to study the, the spirit. So sometimes we push our knee too far and have a knee injury. And then along the way, yes, we learn how to open the hip, but the actual opening is about the light of compassion and wisdom that we gain from the process of healing. So it's not that we need in any, in any way to ever injure the body to open, but sometimes these things come up. And when they come up, we're on a path towards healing. And that path towards healing may include a body part that we didn't realize before getting attention and thereby gaining more strength or flexibility. And then, and, and then ultimately leading to what looks like an opening physically, but the real opening happens when we learn those deeper lessons. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Good. So Carmen, hi, Carmen. I see you got your hand raised. So let's go ahead and uh, feel unmute yourself. Hi, Kino. It's nice to see you. Good to see um, you too. <laughs> Yeah, so the question I have has to do with, uh, it's twofold, and it has to do with um, building endurance. I've been practiced for a little while, but just that endurance to go through the whole practice, I just get so, um, like physically I can do the poses, but the jump throughs and it's just um, towards the end, there's just a, like fatigue. And then I'm finding with this, with this training, we're emphasizing my sore practices and I, I struggle through guided practices now. So even for this morning, so my sore, I'm excited about my sore practice, but when I think, oh my gosh, Kino is teaching, I have to get through her uh, um, Surya Namaskar counts. I'm like, mm, I don't know. So it's like, it almost feels like when I first started, I used to look forward to the guided practices, but now I, I really just, um, I dread 
the guided practices because I, I don't know if it's, I, I have to count, rely on your counts, for example. Yeah. And I'm thinking before getting on the mat, I'm thinking, oh gosh, keynote counting through sun, sun salutations and Navasana. I don't know if I can get through that today. So it's just, um, I don't know if it's a phase or that you go through with the practice, but the endurance is something that I still, even though like most of the poses I can do now, but my gosh, um, the, uh, um, the endurance, I get really, I get tired. So drop backs I can do, but because I'm so tired, I don't, I don't do them consistently. And then also trying to get, um, I, I'm not sure what's going on with my practice since I started my sore consistently, but getting through guided practices now just feel um, like torture. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how else yeah. to describe it. No, I totally understand. So first of all, I, I completely understand. There's, there's something that you want to rec- acknowledge, which is that you've really taken to the Mysore style method, which is great. That's awesome. So within that, there's, there is a magic to that Mysore style method of being able to really go in and it's presented as kind of the way to reach the depth of the practice. So just acknowledge that, like, that's good. That's great. Within that, however, you're noticing that there's even some endurance issues that are coming up in your Mysore style practice because, but you don't reach the end of practice. You don't have the energy to do, to do the dropbacks consistently. We want to have the consistent consistency in particularly the dropbacks. So when you're working with your Mysore style practice, try to get a sense of how much energy you have and then spread that out evenly. And and you have to leave a little reserve for your dropbacks. You know, it's like planning a trip. You know, you have this much gas in your tank or this much charge in your EV. So then you're, no, okay, I have to go here. You know, it's now depending on what type of car you have, give an electric car. You put in the destination, so depending on which, uh, which model you have, it's going to tell you, you don't have enough charge. You have to go here and charge. It, it puts a charging point. So you have to find places within the primary, especially the Mysore practice, where you can get little recharge. Where's my recharge moments? You know, where can I, like I told Christian, where can I not work so hard? Where can I not try so hard? But I can still keep the integrity so I can conserve this energy and apply it in the drop back. So look for that in the Mysore practice. For example, you can walk back and walk forward for the jump backs uh, and jump through. That's okay. You're still keeping the integrity. It's not a problem. So if you know, oh, I'm getting really, everybody, they get tired right around Marie Chess and a C, Marie Chess and a D. Nobody is not tired then. Me too. I'm also tired. Every, Marie Chess and a C, Marie Chess and a D, we're all like, oh, please kill me now. <laughs> you know, please end this now, you know, this torture. And then, you know, Navasana is coming. So you're like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, everybody. Nobody, no, nobody doesn't feel like that. Nobody's like, yeah, Marie Joseph Medea, I've been waiting for this one. I'm so excited, man. You know, I've never met anyone like that. Maybe they exist. I don't know. I'm going to meet them. Somebody's going to come up, send me a message. I am really excited. Of myself. Okay, so there's probably someone out there. I'll meet them soon, I'm sure. <laughs> then, um, so when we, think about, when we think about that, again, you have to conserve the energy. And then if you need to walk back and walk forward, better, you keep the integrity of the, of the chaturanga, up dog, down dog, then force yourself to jump when maybe you need to conserve a little energy. So you, so you do everything to the best of your ability, knowing I have this much practice, I need little energy for there. You, and, it's, and it's a good kind of self-balancing, you know, so you don't overexert yourself in one thing or another and then be totally exhausted for the end. See, if you were in class in person, then on those days where you didn't have the energy to do your dropbacks by yourself, on those days, if you were in person in the Mysore style, that's when you could say, I don't have energy today. Will you help me? And then you could get the, the teacher's physical help. And that, that's why assists are so great because on that day where you're like, I can't do it myself, your teacher can do it with you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then let's go for the guided problem. Everybody has the guided problem, myself included. Everybody has a guided problem. You have to learn to love the torture. You have to learn to love it because it's a different, you have to change your mind. This is not the Mysore practice. Because honestly, guided primary, when, when I take also guided primary, I miss taking guided primary. I get so strong when I take a guided primary because if I do primary series, I can wrap that thing said and done. We're ready for coffee. You know, I take a class, any other class, a David Spencer class. I love David's class. It's very friendly, nice class with space for you to breathe. But Sharad's class, if I take Sharadji's class, then I'm there. It's so slow. His class is so, you think my class is, his class is so, we're doing extra sun salutations or going on forever. So slow. Then I look up at the clock. 
sometimes I look at the clock in the middle of the guided class. How are we only on Janashasana? It's been over an hour. Oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then, you know, just the fact that you stayed, this is awesome. Because they're not everybody stays. Some people, I see them. They look up, they make some estimation. I don't know, maybe they have life circumstance, but I, I don't know. Then suddenly the video is off. And then their video <laughs> is gone. You don't know what they've done. Then they come back on for the talk. Hey! You know what I mean? <laughs> what went on? You know? And some people, I had a friend, I had a friend of mine. She said, this is a friend of mine. She says she does this. So she's in the Zoom class. She's in the posture. She decided, I don't want to take the class anymore. She makes a little acting. <laughs> and then she turned the video off. So she makes a production as though someone has interrupted her. And then she turned the video off. And I was like, oh, you're an actor. She's like, yeah, I don't want to just, I don't want them to think I'm quitting. I want it to look like I have a reason, you know, because I'm never going to say like, if it looks like, you know, I don't know, maybe they have a child and their child is calling. I'm never going to say like, hey, don't leave. If they make that expression, it could be a serious situation. I'm never going to say that. I'm never going to say, hey, come back and start practicing. They, you know, you don't know. I'm not in the house with the person. My friend said that. I was like, oh, you're sneaky. Now it's my friend. I'm going to, I told her, you better not turn the video off in my class. This is my friend. So now, you know, I can pester her a little bit more. So, so the guided class, first of all, just accept that the lesson is different than my sort. That's important. So we accept that we, this is different. We're building different type of endurance and we're, we're shining the mirror on where we go fast in our Mysore practice or where we take too much time, where we luxuriate, you know, I often personally luxuriate my entries and exits into postures. Like I sit there and like talk to my hip and feel this and feel that and move in. And then I get into the posture and I stay for five breaths. And so then that's often where I waste time where I don't really need that. Like I can probably just do it. Um, and then, so I get that mirror shined on and everybody has the Navasana mirror where we're like, what are we doing when we do Navasana by ourselves? There was one point where I was in India for six months and we had this guided primary once a week. And once a week, I didn't understand it, how I could die in guided primary once a week. Cause I was doing third and fourth series every day. And I just felt like I'm doing third and fourth series every day. Why is guided primary killing me? This is ridiculous. And so I put in my practice just as like a prepare. I'm like, I'm going to do. I was in Navasana. I couldn't, like, I couldn't take it. So I just said, in addition to third and fourth series, every afternoon, I'm going to do 10 breath Navasanas just to prepare. So I'm not dying on Fridays. I did that. I, I didn't, I didn't do it for so long. Because then I figured it was just better to die on Fridays than to die a little every day. I just accepted. So, so I think that there's some lesson of accepting this, uh, this little, the little bit of torture and being, being, and always working within the safety realms of the body. So to always say, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? You're not safe. You modify, you know, come down, anything like that's fine. But if we're totally safe and we're just resistant to it, it's a great opportunity to just meet that within ourselves and realize, oh, this is cool. You know, oh, I get stronger from this. I'm meeting this thing. I have resistance to it. How do I, how do I react when I resist? What's the body? So we turned into kind of this meditation on, on um, resistance, which in and of itself is a, a wonderful tool of liberation, a wonderful tool to kind of shine that light. I feel, I never feel stronger after, you know, I really do some good guided primaries. And I feel that, you know, we keep, if you keep the consistency over time, it does, it does get better. Um, Used to be that the uh, Patabi Joyce and you know and uh, never really teach the guided primaries in in India. They only taught the guided classes outside of India, and then they realized that many of the students, even long term students, had no idea of the vinyasas that they were just doing the asanas. So I see this sometimes with people that do only Maestro style and they never take a guided class. Is that they have there's a there's a precision that you can get from the guided classes. That sometimes in the Mysore, you can slack off a little bit. For example, the entries and exits are very specific to the seated poses. We inhale, prepare, exhale, fold, you know? So we stop the inhale, jump, asho, exhale, go down. Nava, inhale, come up, exhale there, cancel. And there are all these very particular things. And that's the same thing in second series and the same thing in third series. So sometimes when you learn an asana only Mysore style, then your teacher told you that entry, but because you didn't get the guidance every day, then you have found a way to do the asana that works for you, which is great, but we, we might lose that integrity of the vinyasa method. So it's really good to keep that integrity and just to come back in as a check-in, make sure you check in and know the vinyasas and especially for you in the course to make sure that you're having that 
you know, that, that precision with your knowledge of the entries and exits and that coordination of breath with movement about how that goes. It's good to have that mirror because even if we know them, we can start to slack off with that a little bit, you know? So sometimes when I have a, a, a student that practices my social style and they come and take a guided class with me, I notice that they, that there's some of the, the, some of the vinyasas are just, they, they fade away, you know, they fade away. So if you remember to what I was talking about at the beginning of kind of like this little, this little talk about how we tend that sacred fire. So we check in on the vinyasa methods. We want to, we want to be able to pass that on. Oh, here's this method. Here's this method. And so, so, so it's very useful in that, in that regard. And I think, you know, once a week is good if you're a Mysore style practitioner to come in and, you know, once a week, once or once a week, twice a week, a guided class is really useful. So they started to do that in India for guided second series also. And if you think guided primary is bad, oh Lord, we really need to be saved from the lead second series class because the second series lead class, oh, this is a terrible thing, you know? That's horrible because now there are many asas in second series that many students have spent a lot of time kind of developing the ability to do, but only with a lot of process work. So like a deep backbend. Okay, here I go. Okay, I'm going to talk to my spine. Okay, there's my spine. There's my mula bandha. Okay, mula bandha. We're going to do backbend. Okay, no, you don't like it, but here we go. And then we breathe. We open the chest. We put the shoulder here. We do this. We do that. Like 25 breaths later, we're in the asana. And then like 25 breaths later, we've recovered from the asana and we're moving on with the series. And guided intermediate is, is like no remorse. You know, it's just like, except the inhale, ashto kapotasana, go one, two, three, you know, and it's like, ah! and so it's a whole other level. And it's like, oh, all these asanas you think you can do now try to do them on command. Oh, I can't do them anymore. Wonderful. I have been so terrified of doing a lead third series class. Patabi Joyce said to me a couple of times, lead, the lead third series coming, lead advanced is coming. And I begged him, please no, like we don't need this. Like, I just don't need this in my life. Like I- I'm really quite good. I, so I never did it. I begged him every time he said it, I was like, please no. He's like, I'm doing, please no, please. I don't need this. I Please no. Luckily, he never did it, but uh, occasionally, um, strategy is adding on some of the third series to his lead second series classes. That was horrible enough. Um, so, so the guided classes are horrible, and and an awesome horrible. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's this idea of this is this is challenging. This is hard, and I'm here to to learn and rise up from that challenge. So I'm learning about about some other aspect that were that difficulty, were that quote unquote torture, not be there. I wouldn't learn about it. Thank you so much. That was very, very helpful. Thank you. I see some questions have popped into the chat. We're just at the time, but uh, let's see if there are any other questions that came in the chat. So Itzi, Itzi has any tips for pushing the shoulders away from the ears? I have a tendency to push them during headstand prep and I end up with pain in the neck. So shoulders away from the ears needs to happen by activating the rotator cuff and the muscles that insert inside of the armpit. So when your shoulders come up near the ears, particularly with headstand, your rotator cuff is disengaged and your trapezius is squeezing for its life. So you have to rotate the elbow in and tight inside the armpit. And you have to be diligent about this. Diligent, diligent, diligent. You feel this losing, no headstand for you, headstand prep for you. So I really mean it when I say you don't need to do a headstand. You can just stay in the prep and shoulder, 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 shoulder. And then when your shoulder's ready, automatically it will go up. So many people say, go up, and their shoulder is not ready. So we, we, we think the asana is the goal when actually sometimes the preparer is more of the goal. Okay? All right. Alex is asking if I'm going to be teaching um, in person uh, in Miami. So Alex says that my May week is already sold out. So there's two things. First, when we're in our new building, we're building this new building that we seem to be building forever. It's like the eternal building. We may as well be be building, you know, some um, epic structure, but it is kind of epic, but it's just supposed to be done like a year ago. (laughs) Um, You know, yay. Uh, but, uh, we're suffering. We're in, we're in the Navasana moment. We keep going through and we keep uh, trying to lift up and hopefully we'll get there one day. Uh, so anyhow, if the, when, when the new building is open, we're both Tim and I are going to be adding a lot of, um, a lot more frequently in-person Mysore classes here in Miami. So, uh, that's part of the thing, what we're going to do in the new space. We have three rooms there and we're going to be, uh, the, our idea is to teach more regularly sort of batches of one week classes. So just stay tuned for that. We just can't post anything yet because we're at the mercy of the powers that be, um, about when we're going to finish that. Natalie's asking about online Mysore. So 
we're doing some online Mysore for our 300 hour course. Tim and I are doing that. Tim, my husband's going to add one uh, online in May. So Natalie, stay, stay, stay tuned for that. Okay. I don't know about me online with Mysore. I want to add more in-person ones. So Natalie, you're with Berkeley. Berkeley is only a little airplane ride away from Miami, but, uh, but stay tuned. Maybe if you keep asking me again, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely consider. So let's see any other, any other questions that came up and uh, good. Okay. One more. I saw one more question. Malin had one question. Do you start adding asanas from second series after Prajvatanasana or Dasana? So first of all, work with your teacher and figure out if you're ready to start the second series. When you're ready to start the second series, a couple of things I think are important. First, make sure you finish the primary series and you have energy. If at the end of primary series, like, oh, I'm so exhausted. I need to have a nap. I need to take massage. Second series, oh, don't do it. You know, primary, it's a little bit like, I'm exhausted already. Why do you want to be more exhausted? But then we're like, oh, it looks interesting. So then why are we, in- I'm interested in that. Wait until your body gives you the green light. Oh, my body is telling me, I feel relaxed. I feel calm. I finished primary series. I feel so good. I feel I, I have so much energy. This is a sign from your body that maybe more is a good idea. Then number two, make sure that the asanas in primary series have a sense of being settled so that the asanas, and doesn't have to look like a you know yoga advertisement. That's not what I'm saying. So the asanas just need to be kind of, you understand them. They make sense to you. Your body feels good in them. You understand what to do. You have a sense of the technique. At that point, You've got that grounded. Then third, make sure you've been taking full primary series at least one year. Some people, they're so flexible. They're so natural. They have all those gifts and you know they come into the practice, this gift, this gift, this gift. Then they start taking practice and they can do everything. Woohoo! You know, they want to start second series. One year of practice because you have to put the discipline in. Without that as the foundation, then second series can be too disruptive. You know, and we put the second series, two disruptive tools. Primary series, minimum one year. Minimum one year before you start the second series. I think it's very important to take the time to get grounded in primaries, even if you're naturally strong and flexible. Even if you do all asanas on the first try. There are some people, they do all asanas on the first try. They come from another planet. They're slowly taking over the planet. I'm just kidding. I don't know what planet they come from. So if we think about all of those, uh, all the the work that we put in, minimum one year, grounded in the asanas and wait for the signal from your body. I have lots of energy. When you have those three things, then at that point, we can start thinking about second series. And at that point, you and your teacher have a conversation and you start adding on one by one, one asana at a time at the end of the practice after setu bandasana, uh, before backbends. And then slowly, slowly, no matter what series you do, always one day, only primary series. And that's important. Okay, good. Well, I just want to thank so th- thank you, everyone, and send you thanks again. It's been such a great time to share this practice with you. I think I'm teaching again in like two weeks, maybe something like this on the, maybe something in about two weeks. So I hope to see you again for practice. And uh, if not, I'll see you as a student next week. I'm, I'm not sure who's teaching next week. Does someone know who's teaching next week for us? I can't remember, but someone nice is teaching next week. Petri. Oh, Petri is teaching. Well, it's the first time Petri is teaching. Please come for Petri. I'm going to take the class. So please come for him. We've never had him before. He's a really wonderful teacher um, from Finland and uh, the old friend uh, from Mysore. So please come next week. Very, very exciting uh, that Petri is coming. So please come take practice. And then I'll see you again in two weeks. And I just send you a lot of love. And again, thanks so much for your time and your dedication to this practice. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Kino. Thank you, thank Kino. You. Yeah, we can all of you and say thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Inspiration Show. It's always a pleasure to share the inner space of the yoga journey with you. Remember, you can always find me online at omstars.com, www.omstars.com, and on my YouTube channel and all social media at Kino Yoga. I look forward to seeing you on the mat, and more than anything, I hope you take the inspiration to practice yoga and make your world a better place. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at 
www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.